Stuart Dryberg is a New Zealand cinematographer now based in New York, working in Hollywood. After receiving a degree in architecture, Dryberg changed course and pursued a career in film, working as a gaffer from 1979 to 1985. From then on, he has worked only as a cinematographer, at first shooting short films, music videos, and TV commercials. His 1993 period film, The Piano, was nominated for countless awards, including the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. In 1994, Dryberg shot his first U.S. feature film, The Perez Family, and moved permanently to the U.S. in 1996. His other credits include The Great Wall, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Bridget Jones's Diary, and An Angel at My Table. Dryberg has spent the past few decades honing his craft, and he utilizes both digital and film techniques in his work. In this interview, Mia delves into Dryberg's artistic techniques and unusual path to cinematography. Stuart Dryberg, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much. Thanks, um, so you're a cinematographer, a, a director of photography on so many diverse films, but I think that one thing, because we're in an educational initiative and um, your path to cinematography is an interesting one, you know, uh, it wasn't your, um, I don't know if it was, it was your first love, but tell, tell us how, that's really interesting for students, how you came into it. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, bear in mind that in the mid-70s when I was in college in university, there really was no film industry in New Zealand where I was yeah. living and studying. Um, and I was, uh, my father was an architect and sort of for want of anything else, I kind of fell into that. I knew a lot of, knew a lot of architects and I liked the creative process. So, you know, I was, I was in, uh, in, in school for that. Yeah. Uh, but, as the, the, the decade wore on uh, and the New Zealand film industry sort of kicked on. So mid seventies, New Zealand, well, actually what happened was the Australian film industry kicked off big time with Gillian Armstrong and Bruce Barris and people like that. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, oh, yeah. Really, you know, uh, and New Zealand and Australia have a tradition of, of being sort of competitive cousins, if you like. Mm -hmm. when it comes to sports and anything. And yeah. we still looked across the, I say we, you know, the people who knew anything about filmmaking in New Zealand looked across the ditch and went, well, hang on, the Aussies are doing it. We should do this too. And uh, yeah. so, you know, a few people um, like uh, Roger Donaldson uh, started making, a, made a major feature film in New Zealand in the late 70s uh, called Sleeping Dogs. Um, and suddenly it was all sort of going on. I had one friend who graduated from college and was working as a trainee editor at the National Film Unit. Um, another friend was working as um, a, essentially a PA, office PA on, on Donaldson's film, Sleeping Dogs. It was some sort of a, oh, there's this film thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of my tutors at uh, the university, Dave Mitchell, um, was a friend of Roger Donaldson's and had been involved in some of his film projects. They did a documentary on Edmund Hillary in the Himalayas, yeah. which David had gone along to you know, help out. Of. Um, and we did a we did a design project for a film studio, just mm -hmm. using Roger and his company. And I, and I sort of got to know them, and went, oh, that's interesting. And I'd always had a strong leaning towards still photography and we did a lot of still photography a lot of darkroom work and a lot of you know and we had a play with early video as the research tool in in my final year i became inspired to try and do my final year what's called a subthesis uh in the form of a film so i borrowed a 16 millimeter camera from the art college across the way and um, bought some hundred foot daylight loads of film and figured out where I could get it processed um, and started sort of making this film really without any real idea of what I was doing. I mean, pretty naive, um, but it was fun and um, the result was okay. And the Dave Mitchell, the tutor sort of 
interceded on my behalf when it came to assessment and said, this may not be architecture the way we know it, but don't worry, he's never going to practice and embarrass us. Let's just give him a degree, get him out of here, you know. <laughs> right. so they did. And I went, uh, drove a taxi in Sydney for six months and then came back to New Zealand and started working as a, you know, runner, lighting assistant, whatever, on um, the, the local productions that were starting to kick up in the freelance world. Um, so that's sort of how I, yeah, I kind of fell, I, I kind of fell into it. I had a good creative training in architecture. I loved my photography. And the film industry was just kind of getting going. And as I, as I like to say, I was uh, unemployed, young and, and available and interested. And, 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 you know, therefore, you know, they kind of invited me to run away and join the circus with them. And I did. Um, and it was very much like running away and joining the circus in those days. It was a very sort of almost hippy-dippy um, group involved yeah. in filmmaking. Um, and we were all kind of learning. Um, you know, there were a few people, you know, who had been trained as, uh, with film cameras for the local TV stations. A couple of people had even had overseas experience, people who recorded sound who came from radio mostly, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. Art directors who'd worked in TV. You know, it was, um, it, it was very much a group of people making it up as we went along and sharing knowledge. And it was the most extraordinary edu film education because I, I was often being trained to do, uh, say, lighting. I fell into the lighting department quite quickly. I was being trained by cameramen uh, to be their lighting technician uh, because they needed somebody to do it, not because I actually knew what the hell I was doing. So they would literally be on the job training with me. Um, and it was you know, just the most extraordinary uh, training, really, just the best. Well, I, I do often think that that's the best kind of teaching. I mean, the universities try to copy that system, you know, but really an apprenticeship, I think, and you get that with people, yeah. you know, or you're discovering it together because then you have to scrub, you have to be really creative then. <laughs> yeah. No, there was, there was a bit of that. And as you say, but it was very much like an apprenticeship, like a, an a, in, informal apprenticeship mm -hmm. for a lot of us. And what it seems from a, from a distance, though, I know that there's all these, as you said, you know, maybe sh shorter projects or things that we haven't seen. And then in terms of like the first film I saw of yours, which I'm sure, you know, everyone was so moved about that poem to place seemed to be um, the piano, which just you seem to like explode into our vision. Um, I know in some way you felt pigeonholed by that, but it's just a very beautiful film. Oh, I, just saw. Um, I don't know about pigeonholed. I was incredibly lucky that my first i mean it was i'd done a long form couple of long form things before that one with jane the director yeah. um angel at my table which yeah. was conceived of as a limited what we would call a limited series now three-part yeah. miniseries for tv and shot on 16 millimeter uh but eventually you know blown up to 35 for theatrical release in certain markets yeah uh, but i mean no um Piano was quite literally my first feature film. And um, I had been, I had definitely been honing my craft for want of a bit of work for about five or six years, shooting TV commercials and music videos and pretty much anything, anything that came along. Mm -hmm. Plus I'd done the, the you know, the, uh, and there was a culture of doing short movies as well in New Zealand. Uh, you know, government arts body funded, you know, short films, you know, 10, 15 minute essentially filmic short stories. And I'd done quite a few of them by that stage. So I was kind of, um, I had the, the skill set, I guess, or the, but I certainly didn't, um, I had no, none of the sort of big movie um, skills. <laughs> So I was incredibly lucky that, you know, Jane, uh, Jane and I, you know, had struck up a great relationship and the film Piano um, is almost a silent movie. The, the yes. main character, it's Holly Hunter's character, Ada, doesn't speak. And so um, 
you know, it became very apparent just from earliest conversations with Jane that the, the, the storytelling would be primarily with the camera, but you weren't going to rely very heavily on dialogue or exposition on this movie. Yeah, there is dialogue, obviously the other characters, the, the non-mute characters, but the central character uh, is mute. And, and uh, so it really threw the weight on the storytelling. And there was also, I mean, that, so that was, you know, a gift. Um, the second factor, I think, that makes the piano unusual or at its time unusual was that if you think, uh, as we did, we looked at the, the other, you know, set in the 19th century in New Zealand, and we looked at other period movies at that, that time, and a lot of them were the, the beautiful, beautifully crafted, um, but rather predictable merchant ivory films of the, you know, of, the, of the late 80s and early 90s. And we really did not want our film to look like that. It would not be period, would not be, you know, very wide lens and lots of revere, reverence played to costume and decor. You know, although obviously all those elements are in there. Uh, we really, and I guess this is probably Jane would, would say, and, and she, she echoed this again on our next film, Portrait of a Lady, that even though the, the, the story set in the 19th century, the, the, the character is essentially a modern woman. Yes. Uh, or can be, you know, seen as a modern woman. And we wanted to convey some of that modernity. And so we consciously avoided the tropes of conventional period movie. And that pushed us into, um, you know, finding visual motives that, not to say they were 100% original, but they were typical. Um, you know, we used, um, we were inspired by a book that Jane found of autochromes, which is this very primitive uh, late 19th century, early 20th century color still photography technique oh. that, that involves, um, it's mad, it sounds completely mad, it involves dyeing grains of wheat germ with the painter's palette colors, blue, blue, red, yellow, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And scattering them at random on a photographic plate and then exposing that plate like a daguerreotype. Oh, I see. And, uh, and then essentially you would view the vignette, anyway, mad as it may seem, it yields color photographs, but in an almost random way. So you get color shifts that go violently one direction or another. Some shots come out very warm, some come out very gray or blue or green or even uh, magenta. And so we, 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 we were like very inspired by that because it was sort of like an ancient technique that, that so that helped convey period but it also was not one that was very widely seen. And that's where like the idea... a bit like punk ancient, like ancient but punk, as you describe yeah. it. Yeah, it sort of is. Um, were for a long time the only way of ca- truly capturing colour images, and as it was refined, um, early National Geographic magazine used them a lot. Wow. Uh, in, and if you look back at some of the really if you you know do a google search really old national geographic images you'll see these um i've completely forgotten what that guy said that it's okay with the wheat germ the wheat germ <laughs> coloring the wheat germ pictures yeah it is it's it's a steampunk process for sure um anyway so so we we applied that and that and that led me to okay how do we do this um and i already owned um from a ski film that I'd done, you know, a few years before, I owned a, a lot of uh, these acrylic filters, color filters. Oh, okay. That I used for different effects, and so I went out with my still camera and shot a lot of color slides, mm-hmm. just playing with different color washes in the different locations, and and that sort of, and then you know, we brought those back and loaded them up and had a slideshow and had a look at what worked and what didn't work and, and you know that's sort of how we found the sort of bluey green forest look which um as 
Jane described was the, the bottom of the fish tank. Um, the beach was, the, the beach is a black sand beach, quite literally black sand, heavy black oxide um, that shines almost with, with purple and magenta hues when, it, when it's wet and different times. And so that led us to that palette there, which is you know, very sort of desaturated and monochromatic, but uh, sometimes yellowish, sometimes bluish, grayish. Um, and then the, the house where, where Sam Neill's character, Stuart, takes Ada uh, to live is, which is, is one where he's basically carved out of the, the, the native forest you know, by brutally felling trees and burning and doing all that sort of settler stuff that sadly is still going on in Brazil um, in the rainforest. But, you know, it is sort of the same. You know, the 19th century settlers approach to the rainforest, they saw it as a as an impediment to development, they chop it down, burn it down, plant grass, raise cows. Um, and so he's created, and of course he's early days, so basically what he has got is a, a lot of burnt trees and acres of mud. <laughs> so that's sort of a red, orange, brown palette. Uh, and, and, and that's sort of how we, you know, delineated the different places within the, within the, within the story. Um, and I've kind of... No, it's interesting. I'd wondered when I'd seen it, and, and I don't know what, but I had I thought of this painting by Digger, and I wondered um, if there's a mother or a kind of caregiver. I don't know if that was something that you'd seen, or, but um, it always reminded me on the beach, and there's a young girl, and she's combing her hair, but there was this heaviness of responsibility. But maybe that wasn't a painting that you had looked well, at. I don't recall that one, but one of the what things that Jane does with all of her films, or certainly at the time I was working with her, um, is she compiles a lookbook, which is all kinds of references. And the, and the, the book for the, for the piano um, definitely had a lot of 19th century uh, art, uh, landscape painting, early photography, uh, studies, uh, you know, portraiture, you know, so it wouldn't surprise me if that Degas painting was in there. It's just, uh, actually, hopefully I still have that book somewhere in the basement. Um, oh, that's great. So you had the, um, you know, I want to go back to that thing about uh, the wheat germ process that like, we don't know the name of, but you, you spoke about early National Geographic and it made me think about how, well, now Ge National Geographic is so sharp and we see the same thing with digital versus film and that that's something the variability the there's kind of happy accidents and those kind of things i mean what where do you stand on film or you have a certain deep affection um, i mean i do have a deep affection for film and I, I i as you say that particularly because of the happy accidents that, that for all you know as a cinematographer of some experience you know for all of, of your knowledge and your ability to manipulate the image, you know, stuff happens that you that you don't expect and you couldn't anticipate um, when when light goes through a lens and hits a film emulsion. Um, it's not to say they don't happen in di the digital world, mm -hmm. but they're less surprising when they do. You know what I mean? Like you know, because you see them immediately, mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that it sort of led there to be a sort of playbook in digital photography, you know, all the things that as a young cinematographer and camera assistant and gaffer, you know, we tried to avoid was lens flare. It was all that, don't, don't ever have lens flare. It's really bad. You know, now everyone wants lens flare in to the point that sometimes they actually add it in digitally after the, after, in post, you know, it's like it's crazy shit. I still prefer film. Uh, as I do actually think even with the best cameras and I've had the good fortune to work with the Ari Alexa 65 system, which is a medium format, large format digital system, which is absolutely, it really is beautiful. It's as close as digital gets to film, in my opinion. Um, I think if I was really, really, really going for, for beauty above all else, I would um, still choose to shoot film. And occasionally we do.
you did with the secret life of walter mitty was that the last one that you did in film i did two after that actually with oh. with mark, with mark webb um, um one his film gifted oh okay that was and the other one the only living boy in new york now mark's an interesting director he he's a bit younger than me quite a bit younger than me mm. uh and came up through music videos and then you know, made uh had a hit with uh 500 days of summer is it 500 mm. that sound right yes yeah, I I that, yeah. yeah and and then did a couple of the spider-man movies and then after that experience decided to go back make, to making more personal lower budget films which i was fortunate enough to get involved in uh, say gifted and only living boy both of which were um captured on 35 mil film mm. and uh both bits of work that I'm very proud of, actually, very, um, very, very interesting films. That's wonderful because I've been, we've all been hearing the, you know, the, the death tolls of film, but it seems like it can be almost as expensive with all the, or time consuming, with all the things you have to do, you know, to make it look old, fake old. And not even that, just, just the, the, the amount of, um, what, what we term deliverables, the, 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 the different digital formats that have to be created, the amount of digital storage that's required to yeah. to, to to preserve the high oh, right. uh, high resolution image, particularly now, a lot everyone wants to shoot 4K. Well, you know that that means that when it comes to 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 archiving that material for for editorial, you, you need vast amounts of storage. Uh, and then there's the, you know, but you can't edit with that because it's too slow if you work at 4K. So then you have to create a DNX 36 or whatever down, mm-hmm. down res version. And then there's often another version for dailies that has to be posted. So there's a lot of, um, there are quite considerable downstream costs mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in digital video, which end up at, on certain projects making it cost comparative with film to this day. Um, I know that we ran the numbers uh, for the only, I think it was for the only living boy in New York, yes. And, you know, it was a fairly small budget, relatively small budget movie in the 10 to $12 million range. Right, you could still do that. But we, it was still quite viable right. for us to, uh, to shoot on film. Yeah, it's so nice because, well, I'm a painter. And so, I mean, it's possible and I can do like photorealism, but there is something and uh, with the way some people shoot, not the way you do, because you're adding this, this artistry, but the way some people shoot digital, it's like looking at all these little knife points. Like it's for me, (laughs) my eye feels tense. And so what's strange is it takes you, for me, even though it's so real, hyper real, out of the illusion, because I know it's, I know there's, I'm very aware of the camera. I, bec- I imagine the camera crew. Like, I, I can't forget about them in that, when it's done improperly. Well, I know what you mean. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it, you know, I have been lucky to, to, I mean, I think, you know, going back to The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, yes. that was, and I don't remember what year that was, or 2014 or 13 or something. Um, but it definitely was in the, modern era of high quality digital capture you know the, the yeah. I, I honestly think the earlier the earlier digital hd capture was pretty shitty it really did not look great but i'm pretty sure that when we did walter midi it would have been possible to use either uh, one of the new high-end panif- um, Ari alexa was already available if, mm-hmm. if not that year it was the next year and and that was a game changer for digital in my opinion it really changed because it was a, a digital camera designed by camera people as opposed to computer technicians or you know home electronics technicians um and it was also based on the, the very successful re um film scanning the re what are they called re scan i'm going to re scan re scan process which was a a, a, a process for capturing film images and transferring it into a digital world for for further post-production and and Ari really had 
got that technology down and they effectively applied that technology to developing the Alexa. Anyway, so the point is, we could have shot Walter Mitty on digital. Ben Stiller chose not to for two reasons, I think, as a, because he was also an actor, the, act, the lead, uh, and his opinion, and it's shared by many uh, actors, is that they look better on film. Yes. But, but it's just kind of, mm-hmm. and they look, you know, the, their faces look, you know, better. Yeah. Um, just plain better. And um, so there was that, but also it's a film that's to some degree about photography. You know, the main character is a photo archivist and, you know, he goes in, in pursuit of um, this photojournalist, the Sean Penn character. And, you know, so there, there's a lot of uh, references to photography through the film. Uh, and Ben himself is a collector of, uh, of photography. He has a lot of um, original photojournalist, you know, Magnum type prints and stuff in his home. Um, so for, for him, it was um, an important creative choice that we do shoot that film, uh, capture on film. Yeah, as I say, even though that, in the way that, as, you know, working later with Mark Webb, same, same deal. Both of those films could have been shot perfectly, you know, I would say like, I wouldn't say as good or better, but certainly acceptable result that most people wouldn't really have noticed um, on digital, but, but it was a, 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 and it does seem to come down to in this day and age that it's a, that if the director really, really fights for film, um, you know, like Chris Nolan is one of the great proponents um, of, I don't know if he's ever shot digital. Um, you know, they shot Dunkirk on six, 65 millimeter film, which is like, Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's camera. <laughs> they put carry that a camera the size of a suitcase, you know. <laughs> um, and they put that they put that camera the size of a suitcase on a on a flying Spitfire. I don't know how they did that, but anyway, they did. And um, you know, he, he so it, it it's a it's a viable choice, and I still think a, a great choice when when you can make it. You know, that being said, I'm now very very comfortable shooting digital, and have done several movies and many TV projects um, using digital medium and digital capture for what is the word we like to say. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've still got a deep affection for film and I do think there's something, there's something magical about the fact that when you, when you, when you, when you're in an editing room and you pick up a piece of, of work print, and hold it up to the window or to the light and actually see the image. You know, it's really, it's really there. It exists. You can't do that with digital medium. You know, like it's just a bunch of zeros and ones buried in a box somewhere. Um, so there's something tactile. And um, I mean, I, you know, back when I was starting and shooting commercials in New Zealand as a kid, um, I used to love visiting the editing room when the, the sometimes that was the only way we saw dailies mm-hmm. and the editor would be sitting there with, with the film and he'd, he'd be like, right. Oh, I think I like this bit here and boom, chunk, chunk, chunk. you know, it'd be, it was so physical and tactile and, uh, and uh, I don't know, it's just magic. You know, um, and that, that we we don't have in the digital world, you know. I'm Heather Osman, a junior at Tulane University majoring in marketing and digital media production. In my studies, I focus on both the art and business of media production, specifically video. As I am constantly learning more about the art of filmmaking, I especially appreciated the way Dryberg spoke passionately about the tactile nature of film. Although digital is now the modern and more efficient standard, Dryberg still prefers the magic, as he put it, of film, even after decades of experience. In my own life, I sometimes find this distinction between what is accepted and what I value hard to balance. As a Gen Z on the border of millennial, 
I have grown up in the digital age and witnessed firsthand its evolution. Subsequently, I have watched as our values have been challenged by the constant influx of new technology and its influence on the social norm. I found Dryberg's confident preference for the romantic aspect of his career both comforting and enlightening in its simplicity, and is a perspective I hope I can integrate into my own life and future endeavors. Additionally, as a business major looking to integrate my creative tendencies into my professional path, I often consider the stability of a career as a creator. Especially in this economy, I am not exempt from doubt. Dryberg mentioned film's tendency to create happy accidents, and the same idea applies to his own life. As he casually described his move from aspiring architect to cab driver to Hollywood cinematographer, I felt a sort of ease come over me. Hearing how he quite randomly fell into cinematography, my perspective changed into one less fearful of the unknown and rather one excited for it, and I hope Dryberg's story can do the same for you. I can't imagine, um, yes, I did an interview with um, Paul Hirsch, so I guess him, he was editing, he saw the transformation of, of editing. I, I think that he uh, appreciates like the, the fast speed of now, but I can imagine no, when no, you were all, joining. All the no, the editors love digital because they, <laughs> they, it really is a much more efficient system. Yeah. But there was something romantic and magical about having the, literally having the film in your hands. Literally, I, th I think the shot should be about this long, clonk, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. They literally do that, you know. It feels, yeah, that feels about, you know. Um, you know. But no, digital editing is way easier and forgivable. You can make a million, you know, you can make... You can put two uh, images together, like... in. Put two images, you, can, you can make it, you know, the first film I worked on, that had digital editing, which was actually my first American film, uh, The Perez Family. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, Mia, I, I can't remember the name of the editor now, but lovely, old, very experienced uh, American editor who Mira was very happy to have. And he, I think it was either his first or second uh, digital editing. Mm -hmm. And he was, like, he was so excited. You'd come into the edit room at night after the, after the shoot, and we'd go into... Well, I'd be waiting for other people to come in for, to see dailies because we were still screening dailies as film, film print. And then that was being transferred into a digital medium for him to work with. But, you know, when we, we'd come in to see dailies and we'd go into the edit room while we we're waiting for everyone else to arrive. And you'd um, um, go, okay, so, so Mira, this is, uh, this is scene 57. This is, the way, this is the way you described it to me. There it goes. Now, I thought, what if we do this, 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 and this? And that, then he just plays that version because he's got all those versions built in parallel. Oh, and then I turned it on my, turned it on its head. What if we play the whole thing backwards? You know, shows you that version. Now, you could never do, I mean, you technically could do that in film, but it would take half an hour minimum yeah. to, to, to do those recuts and read splices and yeah. recover. Yeah. So it, it, it is. I understand why editors uh, and directors probably really love digital editing, yeah, it's great. I think it, it must be interesting then in terms of the intimacy and the trust, the uh, relationship between cinematographers and directors when they aren't, when everything isn't as accessible, there's a kind of flying blind thing. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and having said that, I'm sure there are times when I have assured a director that something will be thus, and it turns out to not be thus, and he's very disappointed. Uh, and conversely, I'm sure there are times where um, I've said, don't trust your eyes on this one. Trust me. I know that this is going to be great. And it is. You, you know what I mean? Like, so, and, and it's a, you know, those two result those two situations obviously becomes a trade-off um for in, in any relationship but um for directors now when they see if everything's going properly and you've got a good dit and you've got good display medium on the set they feel confident that they're seeing at least a version 
of the finished image that they're very ha that they're happy with, or at least they know what they're getting. Um, and that wasn't really true of film. You know, you had to, even though you were seeing a video feed from the camera, it was it wasn't the capture medium. It was a parallel display yeah. of relative, usually relatively low uh, standard definition. I mean, later days HD video, but early on standard definition, not great. Often murky, and grainy, and nasty looking. Mm -hmm. So that they had to, the, you know, the experienced ones would learn to interpret, they would go, well, I know this looks kind of shitty now, but I know when we print it, it'll be fine. But, you know, it was, again, uh, it, there, there was a lot of trust um, required in the cinematographer. Yeah, for sure. Pressure too. Yeah, I mean, dailies is always a little scary, scary you know. <laughs> you know, even to the extent, it, even if it's like a nothing is your particular fault, it could be a camera fault shutter could be out could, everything could be blurry and weird you wouldn't know until the next day no i went to ask so you you did you know angel at my table you did the piano um portrait of the lady i'm kind of skipping over lots of things you come to america 96 and i, I think it, it's interesting to speak you know how one project led to another or um you know, your different collaborative relationships at, at that time. I mean, I think it's fair to say that in the mid-90s, certainly in the US, there was a perception uh, amongst women, women directors that, that they were cautious in selecting their cinematographers because some of the older boys could be a bit be nice bossy Oh. and a little dismissive of the girls you know so i had i came sort of wrapped with a reputation as being uh female director friendly which mm -hmm. i mean it didn't lead to a lot of jobs if, if i think about it not really because the first few jobs i did here were all with men but uh it certainly was what led me i'm sure to um Bridget Jones' diary, yeah, from the UK with Sharon Maguire. Um, uh, but the sort of the, if you like, the more female-centric films tended to nudge me more. Although the first film I completed in the US after coming to live here, mm -hmm. actually the very first project, funnily enough, that I actually completed was the pilot for Sex in the City. So basically, the, the films with Jane Campion, the three, particularly the, th the three films with Jane Campion, which all were, were you know, strong female characters, um, a, a woman director who was widely admired as, you know, to this day as, as a pioneer of, uh, in, in that respect, um, I think, um, kind of kicked me more towards the sort of uh, Bridget Jones' Diary, Runaway Bride, um, we did one with, um, what was it called, um, Kate Leopold, very sort of, you know, essentially rom-coms, um, which, to be fair, I tired of quite quickly. I really, um, you know, though I loved working with Julia Roberts on Runaway Bride because she's such an you know, amazing character, amazing actor. Uh, and... I, Worked again with her a few years ago on Ben is back. Oh, that's right. Yeah, played the mom in that. She's lovely. Um, but uh, I really sort of wanted, was sort of pining for more. Sounds lame. More masculine material, or the better sure. word. I really would love to, want to do an action movie. Or, you know, and eventually I got to do um, uh, Michael Mann's uh, Black Hat, which was. Yeah. Definitely masculine. Michael's movies tend to be very adrenaline, um, very, but very artistic uh, too. Yes. No, no, he he is, but he is very much a guy's guy, you know. And his movies, I think, have that element to them. They're they're um, uh, they're not they're not devoid of good female characters by any straight, but it it's sort of blokish, um, and uh, you know, in a good way, uh, and. You know, a few other, you know, and I'd managed to do a few other smaller films in between that got me out of the, the, um, 
the, the rom-com world. And I've kind of avoided it ever since, really, um, pretty much. Um, it's so easy to get sort of pigeonholed in this business. Oh, you do that. Okay. Well, you can do that for the rest of your life. We'd, we'd, we'd love you to do that for the rest of your life. Uh, but um, I'm kind of, well, you can sort of tell from my resume, I'm not. I'm kind of a bit all over the place, and I like it that way. Well, I can um, imagine, um, sorry, I'm interjecting, but I can imagine as a cinematographer, the movement, uh, we, you talk about even your, your roots in the early film uh, with the piano, it being almost a silent movie. So in, there, in areas, even though there's soundtrack is very heavy, but an action film, that is you, you know, that is, it's so reliant yeah. on that momentum, yeah. right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I like, I mean, I do, I like variety in my life, that's for mm -hmm. sure, uh, in my working life. Uh, I'd love to, um, you also, speaking about that, and we, then I do want to speak about your current uh, documentary in progress, but I want, um, speaking of other large action films, you've done the Men in Black, is it the fourth film in that? Seriously? Yeah, uh, yes, it is. Men in Black International, they called it, although it is yeah. Men in Black 4. Yes. Uh, and sort of a reboot to the franchise mm -hmm. with um, Chris Hemsworth, who, again, I'd worked with uh, on Black Hat, uh, and uh, the lovely Tessa Thompson, um, who um, are, great, are great together on screen and on set. I mean, they're just good people. So that was fun to work with. Um, I don't think it was terribly successful at the box office, but the idea was to to try and uh, reboot the franchise. I, I'm sure that the producers would have been delighted if they could have had um, uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith again. Yeah. But neither of them were remotely interested in doing another Men in Black film. Tommy even more so than Will. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd worked with him on uh, a film in New Zealand called Emperor mm. about, the, about the end of World War II in Japan. He played General MacArthur. And I remember him saying on the set he was going back, I think, to do Men in Black 3. And he was going, oh, I don't know if I've got another one in me. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, and he definitely didn't have a fourth one in him. So they, 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 they wanted to reboot this very successful franchise, but um, they had to come up with new characters. And I, I, I thought they did well. I thought, you know, Tessa and, and uh, Chris did a great job. And uh, they sort of kept the, you know, the, the old guy, young, young guy, or in this case, gal, uh, sort of format. And, the, um, you know, uh, I... I it was a, it was an interesting. What made it so interesting was we were trying to be true to the franchise because yeah. you've got a fan base and you've got like and there's a very recognisable style, you know, uh, and so we wanted to be true to that. Where while also uh, Gary uh, Gary Gray, the director, wanted to introduce a lot more hard action mm -hmm. and kind of half that was he didn't get probably quite as much as he wanted, but um, he certainly definitely kicked it in that direction and, and that was fun. And we've got some great action sequences in the film. I think some really fun ones. Yeah. Uh, and um, so it was sort of a, 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 a very interesting exercise in, in how to, to reimagine um, a much loved film series uh, and, and to update it with new characters and a, like a fresh, fresher approach. Um, which was part of the international thing, which you know, is why most of the other films have stayed pretty firmly in New York or you know, one locality. Um, you know, we got to go to Morocco and Italy and uh, we've seen yes, in Paris. You know. It's a big challenge and it seems, and it's a fun, as you said, it's a fun action um, film, um, but it's interesting, the aesthetic, because it, there's some real retro elements and yet it's futuristic and uh, even the way they're styled is like old G-men or something. So um, Absolutely, yeah. The black suits, black suits, white shirts. Mm -hmm. That was the, the, the biggest challenge in color grading was how to keep the color interesting 
while maintaining, because um, the producers were very, the, when they saw our first post, said, it's great, but sometimes the black suits aren't black enough and the white shirts aren't white enough. So you have to <laughs> go in there and fix that. So we did. Um, yeah, it's, it's full of, full of um, it was a, a very fun project. Very great, great, great time, actually. I, I can imagine because everyone looks like they had a, a great time at that. And then, I mean, speaking of, because um, I just saw it again um, recently, um, The Great Wall. I mean, you've done uh, epic films, and that's with um, Zheng Yimou, right? So uh, yeah. what are the, some of those creative conversations? I mean, I should have asked about some of the other directors, but these are very different directors and very different. Very different. No, no, and Zhang, Zhang Yimou, I've been a fan, I mean, when I have a fan since probably um, Judo, Judo, or the, the 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 one about the girl who worked in the dye works, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I saw that at a film festival in New Zealand, whenever it came out yes. in the 80s, I guess, mm -hmm. and just went, oh my god, it's like, and then saw all his subsequent films. Um, so when the opportunity came up to 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 meet with him on Great Wall, I was like, hell yeah. You know, um, he uh, he's not an, a comfortable English speaker. So all our conversations were done through an interview. He actually understands a lot, but he feels more confident uh, keeping the com creative conversations and through an interpreter. Mm. So you know, there was a little bit of distance in that, but. We did, yeah. We managed to uh, make the movie he 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 envisaged, um, and it was uh, you know extraordinary experience to go to uh, China, uh, admittedly with a largely American film. I mean, yeah, really, you know, he was the only lead Chinese creative on it. Mm. Um, you know, all the costume designers, the production designers, myself, cinematographer, editor, uh, stunt coordinator, second unit director, everyone down the line was essentially American studio hires. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it was a collaboration with um, American producer whose, again, name escapes me right now. I think it was a challenge, I think it was challenge, very challenging for Zhang, for Jimou, because mm. Um, particularly because his leads were non-Chinese speaking, mm -hmm. Matt Damon and Pedro, Pedro from um, Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. uh, among other places, lovely, lovely man. Um, so his leads were, were, were non-Chinese speakers. So again, any, any d direction that he gave them was, through an interpreter, mm. and we had very good interpreters. I mean, who were film film people. I mean, there was a, a small army of, of of great young Chinese um, filmmakers who came on board as interpreters, and that and that's a real, that's really important in that situation that the the person who's interpreting actually understands the medium and the you know the whole concept. Yeah, I had the same experience in Vietnam a few years before that we had a, a young woman who was interpreting for our Norwegian director yeah. who was um, actually a film editor by trade so she oh, was yes. so she was like really you know she was able to 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 interpret not just the words but the intent very mm -hmm. clearly you know behind it. and I think we, we were pretty lucky with that with um, and uh, the experience on Great Wall, um, you know, wasn't without its challenges. It was, it, I, I think, I think the movie's fine. I think it's good. Uh, I think it could have been made and might have been more interesting if it had been done fully as a Chinese production. If, if, if the producers had just given Zhang Yimou the money and said, go away, make this movie, come back in a year, give us a movie. Do you know what I mean? Because he, his process, the Chinese 
filmmaking process is slower and um but also more cost effective in some ways so he you know you could have given him the same money and it would have taken a bit longer and he would have come back with a film which i think might have felt more like one of his movies i mean i i do like the movie i just don't think it it doesn't jump out at you as a Zhang Yimou movie i don't there were a lot of challenges in terms of just the whole, the, just of the, the visuals and I don't know how the sets, I, I don't know, and I don't know what elements are digital, I don't know. Um, oh, we built as much as possible and, and that is the area that I do think it is very much his movie, you know, that he, his, his attention to detail with costume and set design yeah. and lighting and camera, you know, those are, those are all in there. Mm-hmm. I just think that he, I think it was a, um, I'm not sure he would, I'd, I'd be fascinated to know if he would choose to do it again. I mean, obviously it's financially good to go and work in the American system, but whether it's as uh, creatively interesting for him, I, I, I don't know. And you know, that's not a conversation I've had, but sure. you know, he, There's always this yeah. transition period or cultural transition period or maybe second guessing audiences, which is, must be a strange thing, um, you know, not even just on a filmic level, just between countries, <laughs> getting yeah, two I, no, people to understand each other. <laughs> but but I, I do think that, that you know, that, that the time we were there, the Chinese film industry, I'd, I'd done a film in China 10, 12 years before, um, yeah. beautiful film called Painted Veil, which I'm... Oh, yes. Know, yes. Still think it's one of the, you know, in terms of my work is some of the best work I've ever done. Just mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. And we went with a very small Western contingent, mm-hmm. um, worked with uh, a lot of, you know, majority Chinese crew in production management, in scene set design, uh, grip electric. I had a most amazing Chinese gaffer. Ji um, uh, Jamin, who 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 just we don't speak a, one word in common. He doesn't speak any English. I don't speak any Mandarin beyond a few numbers. And um, we got on so well and became such great mates and 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 made really beautiful lighting together. You know. Anyway, the, that 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 was a very interesting, very Chinese experience, and really really great. Uh, coming back. Uh, it was also at a time when the Chinese film industry was basically um, dying. The, the, the pirate, yeah. pirate, pirated video, like if all the movie theaters had closed, all the all the all the village cinemas that had flourished in the in the in the communist years, you know, showing you know party sanctioned films, admittedly, but you know some of them pretty good, mm-hmm. um, were closed. Uh, there were a Barely, they were made, you know, a couple of multiplexes, you know, one in Beijing, one in Shanghai, you know, and they were mostly showing Western films and it's very expensive from the point of view of a uh, local family, you know, other, other than the, the, you know, this was in the mid what, 2010, something like that. 2000, you're right, it was, yeah, you know, it was before my oldest son was born here. Yeah, 2006. So it was, it was, you know, it was before the wealth had really spread out in China the way it has now. Um, so, so, but everyone watched movies, but almost all of them were, were pirated knockoff DVDs that you'd buy in the market or from stores. I bought a copy of a film I'd shot in New Zealand, tiny film called In My Father's Den. It, it screened at the Shanghai Film Festival. And three days later, I bought a copy of it on the street in Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that movie was never even released in China. Um, but, but, but it was, you know, somebody, you know, just decided, well, we'll knock off the whole Shanghai Film Festival uh. library while we've, got, while we've got access to the masters. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, but I mean, that meant, what that meant for the local industry was that there was no revenue stream. They they no longer had the level of state support that they'd had, you know, in the in the you know, Mao Zedong communist years. Um, that you know now in in the sort of new mixed economy, it was you know 
make profit or die. And there was no way of making a profit if nobody's paying for the product. Mm. You know, and so, you know, a few films were still being made. I saw a lovely film uh, by um, oh, Chinese cinematographer turned director, um, Gu Changwai. Mm, okay. A beautiful film, which I think is called Peacock. I think its translation is Peacock. Amazing coming of age film set in the Cultural Revolution about these three kids. And this, I mean, just if you ever, it's just a truly beautiful film. I don't know how the film ever got made, uh, but he did get it made and he got it distributed. But it, it, it never, it was impossible for it to make any money. What's happened, sorry. But it's interesting though. So interesting is, yeah, by the time we were there making Great Wall, um, just because of the, 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 the growth of the sort of middle class in China and the going to, out to the movies on a, particularly on a weekend, mm -hmm. on a date or with your family, was kind of a big deal. It was something everyone wanted to do. Uh, multiplexes everywhere. Uh, showing Western films and Chinese films and some Chinese films like uh, the, there was this uh, Away with the Bullets series, mm. which are these crazy um, gangster musicals. Right. I mean, they, they have the elements of Chinese opera there. And, you know, budgets of 50, 60 million dollars. No, you know, huge. And making money. Mm. So I think there's, you know, there was this sort of Anyway, I, I think it, I, you know, obviously it's a huge market and um, American producers uh, covered it. Mm. Um, and obviously one of the ways in is to involve, you know, uh, I think the experiment with Great Wall was to, to work, look, what happens if we work with the Chinese director? And, um, you know, I, I I think, it, I think it was pretty successful. I think it was, but I think it was a tough, I think it was tougher on, um, on Zhang Yimou than, than, than any of us probably, just because he was sort of a lone Chinese voice in a sea of Westerners, and yet he was running the show, you know. And it's called The Great Wall, so <laughs> it's sort of... And it's The Great yeah, Wall. Yeah. And it's The Great Wall, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, but, but it's you know, interesting it's, because what you said is that you know, yes, whenever you can to to work with uh, a local crew or significant have a significant local participation. Um, you know, I live in Paris, and if I have to see, you know, there's. I think the trend is now for a lot, you know, co-productions, and certainly in Europe. Uh, but you know, you know, it. You know, an American production comes in, and if I have to see that angle of the Eiffel Tower again, you know, <laughs> like no. every apartment, I think they think every apartment in Paris has a view of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it's without doubt, um, you know. So you have to have to get that sensitivity, like you go on the painted veil or on the piano, um, that cooperation, right? Yeah, and, and I and I have to say I love um, when I travel to different. I mean, I have a great bunch of New York filmmakers that I work with whenever I can here. You know, yeah. uh, camera crew and electrics and what groups. You know, the, my 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 people. Sure. Um, but I love it when I go to uh, uh, to even you know, to the UK or I shot a commercial in Paris earlier this year and worked with great. French crew, you know, I did uh, Aeon Flux in Berlin with the predominantly oh, yes. German German crew. Mm -hmm. Lovely, and, and I just, you know, I love, I love, you know, meeting new people and 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 sharing the commonality of, of filmmaking, mm -hmm. but also discovering the little differences, you know, the, mm -hmm. the different cultural cultural elements that come in that then imprint upon the the film process um, when you work with local people rather than, you know, that's what I said, I, I, I felt, I felt that the, I didn't think it was a bad thing, but it was, it, I think Great Wall could have been more interesting if it had been more Chinese. Mm. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like if it had had uh, say a Chinese production designer, for example, mm. not, not that, I mean, John did an amazing job. On it. I mean, we, he built what, when you, the best elements in that film are built 
by um, by the production designer. I mean, the, the actual huge hall that they all meet in. I, you've seen the film? Yes, I, yes, I just saw it. Yeah. I mean, there really is this sort of, he built that whole meeting hall mm-hmm. with huge shafts of light coming in through these high windows. And, you know, we, we literally lit it uh, as per his concept paintings. He had some concept art done and then he built that room and we went, well, that looks really good the way your painter has it. We're just going to put the lights just like that. And it, because it was, it was that good. Um, um, so, um, John Meyer, Mark, very talented designer. Yeah. But, but, but I do think that, that there's, there's something about when you, you know, work in a foreign culture, letting yourself immerse a little bit in that culture, you know, when you, um, you know, as I said, when, when I, the first time I went to China, when I went to Vietnam, Germany, um, every time I shoot in the UK, although that's not as strange, mm-hmm. but it still is a different film culture. You know, I really like the, I really like the, the experience of working with, with the different, in different ways with different people, finding out what they do, how they do it. Now, I think that, you know, a, a big contrast is um, like storytelling um, in Asia or in China or ways of approaching the story filmically or even in literature as opposed to the West. I mean, what are some, th- what are some things that came out to you as approaches that were interesting or, or challenging or you know, different conceptions of how, yeah, as you've worked in these um, You mean... Uh, oh, the first time or the second time, or both. Or, or even just what you've observed through watching their films, because like, oh, that's a different, oh, I can learn something from that, because that's how we operate from a different um, starting point, you know? Well, there's certainly, certainly, and I think it's, it's perhaps less true of the modern Chinese films, which tend to be in some ways emulating Western films in terms of pace and action, but mm-hmm. certainly if you look at, uh, again, using uh, Zhang Yimou's films as a a reference there's a um an ability to stand back and let scenes develop at a slower pace um a little bit more considered i know that um for example he will uh, he will wait several days for the light to be right, for example, before doing a particular scene. We never get to do that in America anymore. That's maybe in the 1960s people got to do that, but yeah. you certainly don't know. If it's on the schedule to shoot today, you shoot it, unless there's like a thunderstorm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, actually, he, he has done, he did another film since then called, um, about, what the heck is it called? It's about, um, a kid who is like the the, sta- the body double for a king. What the heck is it called? It's really cool. It's in black and white. If you if you enjoy his films, it is a real actioner, mm-hmm. a historical actioner. You know, lots of battles and fights and you know, medieval technology. You know, uh, in a way, you know, I think if you have a look at it, uh, I, I I can't for life me think what it's called. Um, my kids will remember. We all watched it together, um, but it, 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 in a way, it. I think it is what Great War could have been, if it had been purely a Zhang Yimou film and not um, um, so influenced by its American uh, producers and uh, writers. Sure. And actors, you know. I- yeah, I understand. It's a kind of, a, it's not, it's a collaboration, but sometimes filmmaking is like a committee process too. And you don't, yeah. It can be, yeah. And particularly these bigger films, there's a lot of, lot of voices at the table sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and voices who, who, who have to be heard, have to be listened to. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, in terms of um, television, you've, you've done some television work, but it's primarily been film. Are you tempted to move more into television? I mean, now it's uh, a renaissance. Well, I, before the, um, the virus shut us all down, I had shot four days on an Apple TV series, which um, 
and it had come into rather late in the piece that uh, one of the cinematographers had had to leave because of a family emergency and my friend Amy who was producing the series called me and said well I come in and so I came in like three weeks high pressure prep mm -hmm. and was ready to shoot for like eight weeks mm -hmm. to do like, three of the episodes mm -hmm. um, and then of course the virus came and we all went home um, so I, I think I think that um, you know, I have no aversion to television. I think I think that uh, certainly in terms of what I'm watching these days, mm -hmm. uh, I love a good movie. Mm -hmm. But oh my God, there's some great TV out there, you know, and some wacky, crazy stuff, you know, that, um, that really because of the length that you can, you know, if you've got eight or ten episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, did you see Outsider? No, I haven't seen that yet. Sorry. Like, that's a good example because that's, um, and I, I imagine they'll try.